It's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, and for those of you that I've uh, not had the privilege of meeting uh, yet, uh, my name is Kevin. My wife, Charity, and our four kids serve overseas in Mwanza, Tanzania. We are part of a, a church planting ministry there. Uh, and uh, every two years we come back to the States, and one of the great joys of coming back is getting to reconnect with our church family here uh, at Landmark. And I know that it, Southern hospitality is a famous thing. But then there's landmark hospitality. Landmark hospitality is so much better than ordinary southern hospitality. And we're so blessed and so excited to be able to reconnect with you all over the next, uh, next four or five weeks. Uh, and we're excited to be able to be here in this, this worship assembly. All my kids were looking forward to getting to Montgomery to hear Buddy preach. And then they found out that I'd be preaching today, our first Sunday here. So they're going to have to wait. Uh, wait till next week when Buddy is back. Uh, but it is a great honor to be here with you. Uh, and I, uh, I think I saw Uduak earlier. Thank you, Uduak, for reading this, uh, this East African uh, fable. Of course, Uduak is from Nigeria. So I don't know if they have all these animals in Nigeria that we have in Tanzania. But she did a great job. And as she was reading, I was thinking... I should have just written my whole sermon and let her read it, uh, because her voice is so great, her reading is, is so wonderful. So thank you for, for doing that. Um, so this, this story is just uh, one example of, of a, a fable and, uh, that, uh, and, and there are so many of them in, in Africa. It's just full of proverbs, of stories, of fables, and many are like this uh, story that we just heard, uh, a, a fable that explains how nature came to be the way it was. But if you go down a little bit deeper and see what the story is trying to teach, if you were to read this story to your children, uh, this story is trying to teach a very important reality, especially in African life. It's trying to teach how important community truly is. It's trying to teach that community is more important than the individual. Sure, the crocodile was strong, and was able to exert his strength on the others. But the community wouldn't stand for it. The community insisted uh, that everybody be able to get their share. Uh, and there's so many stories like this, both uh, like stories like this with animals. There's also stories, if you were a Sakuma child, you would grow up hearing the story of Shingwangwe and Masalakulangwa. Uh, it's a story of a boy who is able to defeat a powerful dragon. But in defeating this dragon, he sets free all the ancestors, all the spirits. And so it's not just a harmony uh, with other people uh, that many people grow up in, uh, in Tanzania and in Sakumaland learning about, but also uh, they're, they're learning about harmony with the entire spiritual world. That's probably the most important thing at where, where we live and work. The greatest desire for people is to get along with others, for there to be peace, for there to be harmony, for everybody uh, to have something, for everybody to share. Now, this isn't the story that, that I grew up with. You know, I try to think of the, the story from my own childhood that, that I grew up with that was uh, probably most impactful. Uh, and, and I'm sure you all know this story. I, I had a little toy chest uh, with the paintings of the story on it. It was the story of the little engine that could. Everybody has heard this story, right? And it's kind of, for me, it's, it's a typical American story. It tells you that if you try hard enough, if you try hard enough, you can do anything. Now, my kids don't like this story 
as much as what I think is one of the modern-day reinterpretations of this story. Their favorite version of this is How to Train Your Dragon. <laughs> how many of you have seen How to Train Your Dragon 1? I've seen How to Tra- I'm not seen the second one yet. Uh, but it's a story of a young Viking. What's the young Viking's name? I'm counting on the kids to help me out. What's the name of the young Viking in the story? Anyone know? Hiccup. Good. Good. So Hiccup is, is another example of someone who, who doesn't follow his family. Even though his family is trying to make him conform to community, he instead goes his own way. And in the end, uh, he creates change. And that's part of our kind of American cultural story. We believe in the power of the individual, and there's a lot of truth there. Uh, but where we work amongst the, the Sakuma people, the most powerful story is a story of community, the story of harmony, a story of peace. Now, I'm really interested in, in stories because really, when you take away some of the um, more exotic aspects of mission work, um, really all I, all I am... All my family does is tell stories. We're storytellers. You know, it might be under a mango tree one day. It might be in a church building another day. It might be at a hospital bed. It could be just in town in the market shopping for produce. But we're merely storytellers. And even our strategy in mission work is called gospel storying, where we take people and tell the story of Adam, tell the story of Noah, of Abraham, and Moses, of the nation of Israel, uh, in the fall of Israel, and of Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, in the church, we tell the story, and people are captivated by the story, and people join the story. And it's been very encouraging. Uh, it's been a, a very encouraging ministry. But uh, a couple years ago, I think it was April 2012, uh, I reached a point where of uh, great discouragement because my confidence in the power of just telling this story and people taking this story in was dashed. I want to show a picture of Lucas Maella. Lucas was a friend of mine, a church planter, a teacher. Uh, and I had known Lucas from about the time I got to Tanzania. In fact, when Junior and Becky Bagwell visited us, uh, in, I guess it would have been 2008, six years ago, uh, they're one of the first people I took, uh, Junior and Becky, to go and visit. Uh, and I had done lots of ministry alongside Lucas, but it was in April of 2012 when one of my co-workers, uh, Eric, uh, on my mission team, he, he called me to let me know that, that Lucas was dead. And in our ministry, uh, unfortunately, in the context where we live, um, uh, getting a phone call like that is not uncommon. People die there too soon, too young. But then he went on to explain that not only had he died, but that he had been killed, he had been murdered. And as shocking as that is, that happens from time to time. But the next aspect, aspect of it was the most disheartening. Because not only had he been murdered, but he had been murdered by his own community, by his own village. And if we were to believe his widow, some of the people involved in that murder were members of his own church. 
Now, if you want to feel like, you know, a missionary failure, <laughs> you know, you're, you're trying to impart, you know, the fruits of the Spirit to people. You're not really expecting, you know, to hear, well, you know, maybe somebody in a church, a uh, church that you've helped and you've encouraged, uh, people in that church have decided to kill somebody else within their church. It's a very low moment for myself and for the rest of the team. Uh, although we, we should have seen some signs, we should have seen some of these things coming, because there were some problems uh, within the church. There are some problems with Lucas uh, that we we're trying to address with him. Uh, but it's difficult. We work with nearly 100 churches. It's hard to be involved in every situation that comes to pass. But uh, to, to not go into the story in depth, I would say in short, Lucas had become a little bit like the cross crocodile. He became somebody who wasn't in, as interested in maintaining harmony and peace with those around him, and he became selfish. And it all started with a simple, uh, a simple disagreement with a neighbor. And it grew and grew, and the village tried to discipline him. Uh, the Sakuma elders of the village tried to discipline him to bring harmony back. But he refused. He refused her discipline, and he did what no Sakuma man or woman should ever do. He went to the courts to sue the other people in his own village that had been ostracizing him. And that's just something that you don't do there. It's totally rejecting all the aspects of community and harmony and peace that a Sakuma village is built upon. And he, he won. He won his court case, and he won an amount of money uh, that would convert to about $1,000 that people in his community were supposed to pay him. Uh, and so the, the case was continuing on. People were appealing the case. But in the midst of that, uh, apparently, some people in the community decided that he just needed to be gotten rid of. Somebody like him would just bring more and more and more problems. And not just problems on the physical plane, but also problems in the spiritual realm. Because if there's disunity amongst you, uh, then your disunity will spill over to the spiritual realm, and your village will be the village that won't get rain. And your village will be the village that some catastrophe happens. And so a choice was made, a cow was sold, people were hired, and the problem was eliminated. Of course, we, we weren't planning on having to deal with, with a situation like this, a terrible situation. Uh, and, and we realized pretty quickly that we had to do certain things pretty quickly. Because in meeting with Lucas's widow... It was clear that she felt like her own life was in danger. She was present uh, when her husband was, was murdered. Uh, her children were present. They were witnesses of something. Uh, and also, the village just wanted the whole thing gone. They wanted to be able to forget this whole situation happened. But Joyce, his widow, was there at his home, still, waiting for the corn in the field to mature, so that she would have food for her family. She felt trapped, and she felt endangered. She felt threatened uh, by people in her community. And to believe her perspective on it, people from her very church were some of those involved 
in the situation. And if they weren't directly involved, they were involved through not standing up, through not defending, for not advocating a different route to take. So we, we got her out. We, we moved her family from the village to someplace where we felt like they would be safer. Uh, and then also we have some long-term goals that we're working towards because I go and I visit her uh, in another village from time to time. Even her situation there is not great uh, because she's in danger of being labeled a witch. Uh, there's been some threats made against her in the village where she is now. What we would really like, our long-term hope and prayer is that she could be reconciled, that she can go back to her home and her farm. Now, this is going to be years. It may never happen. But we're praying for this long-term solution. But, but on the midterm, what I've been working and my teammates have been working on for the last couple of years has been trying to restore the story, to, to better teach the story. And I realized that when uh, I realized that the story had not fully taken root there. When I was with another church leader from a neighboring village, and, and he was helping me, we had visited uh, the village where this occurred. We were trying to figure out what to do, what our response should be, and we were just, we were sad, we were grieving, we were trying to figure out what had happened. And he had told how he and others had warned Lucas, you know, what you're doing is really dangerous. You need to drop this case. You need to reconcile with the people around you. Uh, this is really dangerous what's going on. And, and as he reflected on that, this other leader named Charles, you know, he, he told me, he said, but you know, Kevin, he said it in, in Swahili, you know, uh, and the translation of that is a verse that you all know well. So, you know, the wages of sin is death. Um, the wages of sin is death. Now, we all like that scripture. <laughs> I like the second part of that scripture better than the first part of that scripture, but they just dropped off that second part about the gift of God being eternal life. But they focused on the first part of that scripture, and it was a common view amongst the people that we work with that if you are going to be in sin, particularly in social sin, that you're going to reap the consequences of that. And so we realized pretty quickly, myself and my teammates, that we needed to go back and help them get the story straight. We needed to go back and reteach. And we're having some success, even in that village, where people are starting to make associations. They're starting to realize that forgiveness is not just something we receive, but it's something that we pass on to others. But we need to keep the story straight. What they had done is they started understanding the gospel through their old stories, through the stories from which they grew up, from the stories about community and harmony must be preserved at all costs. They were understanding the gospel through that lens instead of understanding their whole world through the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself dealt with this time and time and time again. Right? When Jesus is with his disciples, you know, did they just automatically understand the story and follow the story and obey Jesus? No. They kept trying to put him back in the box that they had. They kept trying to get him to fulfill their own expectations of what a Messiah would look like. And I think a scripture that illustrates this well 
is a scripture from Matthew 17. That's the story of the transfiguration. So now a real long introduction to get to a biblical text, but let's look at the story of the transfiguration from Matthew 17, verse 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Of course, this is an amazing story, and um, I agree with uh, something that Buddy talked about with this story. This is an amazing miracle that these followers of Jesus are able to come into the presence of God and live. They came into the very presence of God and lived. But they didn't necessarily understand what was going on. They misunderstood what God was doing. But let's let's take a look at this story and see what was going on. Now, when, when Jesus takes his three closest disciples and goes up on the mountain, I'm sure they didn't expect that they would see Moses and Elijah on that mountain. I mean, they knew these people. They loved, they, they revered Moses and Elijah. And they appeared to them on the mountain. But at the same time, I'm guessing that when they're on the mountain and two people appeared before them, I'm guessing that they, they might have expected that these would be the kind of people that you would find up on the mountain. Moses and Elijah, these guys are like the original mountain men of the Bible, right? Where every aspect of, every important aspect of their relationship with God, their encounter with God, their encounter with the presence of God happens on the mountain. First, remember Moses' initial encounter with God at the burning bush. Where does that happen? On the mountain. And then after rescuing his people... Uh, after rescuing his people out of, out of bondage, rescuing his people from Egypt, uh, Moses meets God again on the mountain. Let's read Exodus 24, 1 through 2, just to remind us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not 
come up with him. So strangely enough, again, Moses, he chooses three. Three of his closest friends, disciples of Moses, so to say, and goes up to the mountain. They don't get to go up all the way, the way Peter, James, and John get to do. But they go to the mountain, and that's where Moses is able to hear God's instructions and also hear God's story. Now, we know that Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. But I'd like to suggest that Moses is the father of the story. Because when the, when the Israelites were in captivity, when they were in Egypt, they were just praying out to a God they didn't know, begging for help. And after Moses rescues them through the power of God, brings them out of Egypt, he goes to the mountain, God reveals himself to him, and ultimately Moses writes the first five books of the Old Testament. It's from Moses that we know the story of Adam and Eve. It's from Moses that we know the story of Noah and of Abraham. And, and all through that history, Moses is the father of the story. Now, Elijah, Elijah is different. He's a prophet. But instead of redeeming his people from some outside oppressive force, Elijah seeks to bring the people back from their idolatry. Instead of being the teller of the story, he's the defender of the story. He's the one that lets people know they need to go back to the first story and stop worshiping the false gods. But let's look and see where he goes to meet God. Where does Elijah go to meet God? Let's look at 1 Kings 19. Again, these scriptures are very familiar to us. Um, But let's just look through it real fast. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out. And stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So the mountain is where Moses and Elijah, and now in this story, Jesus, go to experience the presence of God. And these two men were associated. When when the Jews were thinking about the redemption that would come, they were remembering Moses They're remembering Elijah. A lot of times they talk about the law and the prophets. They felt like Moses and Elijah kind of represented these two great important aspects of their history. And even when we look at the the last verses of the Old Testament, the last verses of the book of Malachi, these two great figures are mentioned together. So Malachi 4 verses 4 through 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. And see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So Moses and Elijah are put together here in this this passage at the very end of the Old Testament. And there is this expectation that these would be two key figures in the redemption 
of the people of God. And so I don't think it was surprising. I think it probably filled them with great, the disciples were filled with great joy and hope at the presence of Moses and Elijah on the mountain. But then look at what happens. Look at what happens to Jesus on the mountain. You know, the word that is in the scripture uh, for transfigured is a Greek word. Uh, The Greek word is metamorpho. And you don't have to know Greek to recognize this word. Uh, because we use this word and other things in biology, we know about metamorphosis, right? That's when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly or uh, a, a worm becomes a moth. Lots of other things metamorphosize as well that aren't as beautiful as a caterpillar. Mosquitoes do that kind of thing, but we don't like to think about that. Uh, but yeah, it's this change that happens. Now, when the caterpillar goes in, comes out as a butterfly, it still is the same creature, has the same DNA. Nothing has changed about the caterpillar except its form. The form has changed, but it's the same creature that emerges. We can also think about a geological process. You know, we all know the three kinds of rock, one of which is metamorphic rock, right? Metamorphic rock. So something like marble. Marble is a metamorphic rock formed by other rocks that were uh, under great heat and pressure. Now, the heat and pressure doesn't change, doesn't change the minerals present in the rock, but it causes a recrystallization, a reformation of it. So simply something to metamorphosize, something to be, in this case, transfigured, means to take a new form. Take a new form. And that's what happened with Jesus. And that's what you would expect of something that is put into the presence of God. Let's look again at the story of Moses. These few verses illustrate it so beautifully. Exodus 34, 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak speak with the Lord. And this expectation was not just someone like Moses would be transformed, uh, but... All people would eventually be transformed. Let's look at Daniel 12, verse 3. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then Jesus himself taught in Matthew 13. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So given all this history... Peter's mistake is understandable. 
when he says, let's build three shelters. He's thinking, this is a special place. Let's commemorate it. Let's do like we did in the past. Let's build altars. But God's voice comes from the cloud and says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the same verse, uh, same, same words that were present earlier in Jesus' ministry in Matthew three seventeen, when he says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Of course, that's at the baptism of Jesus. And if you go back even to the prophets, Isaiah 42 says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So God is trying to refocus Peter on Jesus. Not on the three of them, not on Moses, not on Elijah, but on Jesus. But Peter's mistake wasn't just that he was putting Moses and Elijah and Jesus on equal footing. The scripture doesn't say, this is my son, one shelter is enough. (laughs) This is my son, listen to him. And I think that I believe the meaning of listen to him is pointing Peter back to what we just saw in Matthew 16, where Jesus reveals to his disciples that he was going to the cross to redeem us. Jesus wasn't going to establish a new holy site, but his holiness would permeate the whole world. He wasn't going to purify the old law, but instead he was establishing a new covenant. Jesus wasn't going to be just a prophet like Moses and Elijah. But instead, he would cleanse us of our sins and fill us with the Holy Spirit. Let's look real quick at a couple other passages, because Paul, the apostle, picks up on this and intentionally uses the same word, metamorpho. Let's look at Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's the exact same word that's transfigured. Uh, in the, the Matthew passage. Here it's translated transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then if we go ahead to uh, the passage in 2 Corinthians. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul knows that this isn't just going to be something that happens when we get to heaven. Paul knows that we ourselves are going to be transformed through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes us and changes our story. I'm going to close with a story from from Tanzania. Um, This is a story of one of my best friends in ministry, a uh, great co-worker, a uh, man named Ayubu. There's a picture of, of Ayubu together with some others. Ayubu is the second from the left. We're in a leadership training course there. We're doing an exercise together. But Ayubu is um, kind of the closest thing that I have in Tanzania to being just a, a co-worker, a fellow minister. So I'm going to read uh, just from, from a journal I wrote uh, after a ministry encounter that I had with Ayubu at his church. One of the women of the church has a sick child. She has brought her so you could see her and help her. 
Keflin, a four-year-old girl, had been vomiting that day, and she was clearly in discomfort. What child isn't after vomiting? Did she need to go to the hospital, a relatively expensive option, or could she recover at home with oral rehydration solution? I asked a few questions about the sick child, but I did not have clarity for what to do. I have learned what to do when my own children are sick, but I also know that my children are generally healthy. I've also learned that God has placed wisdom and knowledge within our churches, so I turned to the women of the church and asked their opinion. One of the older women spoke up. Her blood may be finished, which is the literal translation of the local idiom for anemia. Others shared the same fear. She may need blood. So I took them, the girl uh, and her grandmother, down the road to the nearest health clinic, where one clinical officer and a handful of nurses serve a population of over 100,000 rural Sakuma men and women. We jumped in front of about 50 other people to see the clinical officer who sent us to the lab to test for malaria and anemia. But after examining her condition further, he decided it too dangerous to wait for the lab results. He quickly wrote us a referral to the district hospital where they would be able to do a blood transfusion. The letter was short, severe anemia, The letter was stamped, and we were off. In the hour I had been with this child, I could see her strength diminishing, her breathing becoming more labored, and her pain increasing. The racing engine and rattling from the rough road couldn't conceal the rapid whimpers from this sick child many miles from the blood transfusion she needed. How does a child become this ill, I wondered. The answer is never simple, but always begins with the family. The woman who brought the child isn't the child's mother, but her grandmother, as the child's mother has abandoned her. Altogether, this woman and her husband care for ten children that are biologically not their own. The grandfather is gone most of the time bicycling charcoal to town to meet the basic needs of the family, but there is never enough. And this is not an extraordinary situation. An informed estimate from our church leaders is that there are over 1,000 at-risk children, like Keflin, that are part of our local church families, and of these, over 300 would be classified as orphans. We finally arrived at the hospital, the larger hospital, where they tested her blood and confirmed anemia and asked for a blood donor. I was ineligible, because I had donated a few weeks earlier, and the grandmother was too old. Thankfully, the minister Ayubu and several others from his church were following behind us on their bicycles. Since they knew blood donors were on their way and aware of the child's dire state, they broke their procedures and started a blood transfusion from their small supply before the replacement blood had been donated. They began the transfusion, and I went on quite late to the next village church I had promised to visit. There's a picture of of Keflin receiving this blood transfusion on the next slide. I returned late that evening and saw Keflin in much better condition, No longer whimpering, no longer in such pain. Thankful to God for all he had provided, I prayed for Keflin and the other children in the crowded ward and headed home to Mwanza, anxious to see and hug my own children, even if they were already asleep. But the story continues from here. When others in the extended family heard of Keflin's sickness, they came to the hospital to see her and to provide help. It is their social obligation But when they arrived, they were shocked to find that it was the members of Keflin's church who had arrived first, who had donated the blood, who had made the first payment of the hospital bill. 
a grown cousin of Keflin remarked, We, her family, we had to come. But these Christians, they came freely. They gave their money freely. That's true love. And because of this love, this cousin decided that he himself wanted to be baptized and join this family of true love. Now, I was so encouraged by this story when, when Ayub filled in the details that happened after I left the child in the hospital. He told me the rest of the story when I saw him next. And I was so happy because Ayubu's church, they're getting the story. They're understanding the story. They're living the story. And it's making an impact. It's making a great impact, both physically, for the life of this girl was, was not going to live to the next day. The doctors told me that she was hours from death. And without their intervention, um, she would not have lived. But beyond that, there's also a spiritual healing that occurred in the life of the family member who saw true love at work. His church is proclaiming a different story. And one reason why his church is able to proclaim a different story is because this church, Landmark, is proclaiming a different story. You know, the holiness of God can't dwell on some mountain in some place. It dwells in our story. It is our story. And when I get to see the lives of people here at this church, how you love for each other, how you care for one another, and get to see how you're so generous, both this church and also the Birmingham campus, so generous in giving to missions and in, and in encouraging your missionaries that are on the field. Uh, it's just so exciting to see in these churches other places where we see some of the things that we love so much about Landmark taking root in the lives of people in a very different part of the world. And I talked to Ayubu more, and I was so thankful for his role. He was really thankful for my role in the story, and I'm thankful that I got to have a small role. But the reason why I am able to have any role in the story is because of a church like this. So I want you all to know on behalf of the churches we work with, on behalf of, of ministers, of elders, of other servants of God in Tanzania, that you are appreciated and you are prayed for because your stories are changing the world as well. Now, um, my main thing that I want you all to know is that you're loved and appreciated. I know Buddy usually gets you to, to the invitation and has something real specific he wants to to, to invite you to. And I don't really have something real specific except to say, if you are struggling to really follow this story, maybe you've never decided to follow this story. Uh, maybe you have people in your lives that you want to pray for that they would know this story. Please, you, know, you, you are welcome at any time to come forward and ask for the prayers of this congregation. I know that there'll be elders up front. There'll be ministers available to you. And as we stand and sing, please, Come forward and ask for any prayers that you may have. Thank you.